0: This is now our second <clears throat> week in Revelation, uh, we're focusing on themes, we're not really going straight through the book, we'll, we'll take it uh, as it unfolds, but we're, we're not going through every chapter, every passage, we're looking at themes, and, and one of the recurring themes in Revelation is the theme of judgment, and you get three primary judgment imageries These seals, think of a seal on the back of of an envelope or as a scroll would be uh, folded up. Uh, Then you get trumpet judgments that will follow and then you get bowl judgments that will follow this. Today we're just going to look at these seals. We're not going to look at all seven of them but the fifth and the sixth one as we have it here in chapter 6 as representative. The events in chapter 5 set this up. And just so we have our bearings I told you last week the imagery in Revelation is apocalyptic and apocalypse has in view the end of something, the word means to, uh, to make something that's hidden unhidden, something that's veiled unveiled and it, and it also conveys uh, destruction. In Revelation we have the end of the old order, the world under sin, the end of everything that has set itself up against the rightful ruler of this world who is Jesus. The end started at the first coming of Jesus. It's like an hourglass uh, was turned over and the sands uh, run out uh, until his return. But the apocalyptic imagery in Revelation paces out the end until you get the, the ultimate destruction of the old order creation under sin. Babylon is a place name we'll get a lot as Revelation unfolds. Babylon is biblical shorthand for human society at its most secularized. Uh, Certainly there's a physical place Babylon but throughout the Bible the place name epitomizes the old order. Revelation unveils the end not to satisfy curiosity about the future but so that the hope of the gospel becomes our hope in the here and now, and that is the emergence out of the old order in which we live and suffer, a world that will no longer be the fairgrounds for evil. There is destruction in biblical apocalypse. The old order has to be judged. It has to come to an end. But there is pacing to this, I say again, pacing to apocalyptic unveiling. There are... Beginnings of ends and ends within ends in Revelation. And so this is a good place to return to the pencil, ink, blood grid that I offered you last week as a way of guiding our takeaways from Revelation. That is, uh, some of what we take out of Revelation we need to put in pencil. Some of what we understand from this book we need to put in ink. Uh, Like there will be a return of Jesus, that's in ink, but how we sequence what leads up to his return is best put in pencil. Now, my sequencing of events may not be right. I'm the product of two institutions of higher theological learning who each differed in their approach to eschatology, which is the doctrine of the end times. So I either came out thoroughly confused or I came out having an appreciation for how uh, different uh, Christian traditions look at this book. So if you find at some point along the way that you wanna argue with me, your understanding of Revelation versus mine, you will find me a non-combatant. I'll just tell you right now, I am not interested in arguing with you about Revelation. If you have a different slant than mine, I will smile and say, you might be right. I might be right, you might be right, we might both be right. It's not that everything is up for grabs. It's not like you read Revelation and go, well, who knows, who knows, who knows, and just shrug it through. No, it's just that with apocalyptic imagery in particular, we have to take care to not be either too allegorical or too literal. To be too allegorical is to turn imagery into whatever I want it to mean, to to spiritualize or read in meanings that may not be there. But to be too literal is to press imagery too hard in order to make it fit in some timeline that I may be imposing on the text. That is certainly a possibility. Now, the good thing about Revelation is that even though people are too allegorical and too literal with it all the time, so the popular conceptions of Revelation are almost entirely either too allegorical or way too literal. So much of the image, the good thing about Revelation is that when you study it, you actually realize that so much of the imagery is built from the Old Testament. So it's really not a book of of guesswork. And with this in mind, chapters 5 and 6 before us, what are we looking at? First here in chapter 5. Do you remember the end of Luke's gospel? Luke gave us two New Testament books. John wrote Revelation, received Revelation, but think about Luke for a moment. The end of Luke's gospel, what do you get? The ascension of the Lord Jesus into heaven. Forty days after his resurrection, Jesus appears and then he ascends. That's the end of Luke's gospel. And then Luke also gives us the book of the Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. The first roughly 30 years of the church. And in that particular book, he begins... With the same thing he concluded his gospel with he begins with the ascension of the Lord into heaven same event here in Revelation 5 John who years before alongside his apostle brothers, stood outside ancient Bethany a suburb of Jerusalem and watched Jesus ascend into heaven in chapter 5 here John now gets to see Jesus ascended into heaven He gets to see the other side of the veil. The short answer, what we're looking at in chapter 5, is the ascension of Jesus. What that looks like in heaven. He gets to see what the victorious arrival of the Lord Jesus into heaven was like. And how, when Jesus ascended, he initiated the beginning of the end. Through his opening, this scroll we have in chapter 5 with judgments written on it. Later in chapter 10, John has to eat the scroll, which is a way of saying, is ingesting it, that the prophecies written on it were now his responsibility to report. Again, that has an Old Testament precedent. Ezekiel, the prophet, uh, was uh, someone who ate a scroll. Now, chapter 5, verse 1 tells us there was writing on both sides of the scroll. Looking at verse 1 in chapter 5, you see there's writings on both sides. That's very rare back then. You didn't have a scroll that was completely filled. It would be on one side, but not on both sides. The nature of the scroll, the thinness of, of, of paper that they worked with, papyrus, was such that you really could only write on one side of it. But now you've got the scroll with both sides, And it seems the scroll has written on it the things that the seal judgments that Jonathan reading to us gave us a little flavor of. And later the trumpets and the bowls judgments. All this is written on the the scrolls it seems. We've got near future and far future both here in Revelation. In essence, if you want it in a nutshell, what the scroll has written on it is what God is going to do about evil. Which, as I've been telling you, is the great story of the Bible. How he's judging evil, this thing that has marred his creation. How he's judging it progressively through the history of the church. And then how he judges it finally. And so the question the strong angel poses, looking now at verse 2 in chapter 5. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? in context one has to be innocent of evil to be worthy and no one is verse 3 no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it and I began to weep loudly verse 4 because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it why is that cause for tears not just because all humanity is equally unworthy Before a holy God, all of us individually and collectively guilty of evil. But the scroll has written on it what God is going to do about this progressively and finally. And if we can't know that, then Revelation presents the church as as a suffering church. If we can't know what God is going to do about that which causes our suffering, then we are left to wonder if our suffering is worthwhile. That's why there are tears. Now as the scene in chapter 5 continues to unfold, Jesus gets the scroll and there's just this sensory overload, (laughs) you know. We look at Jesus, is that you? Lamb standing as though it had been slain, verse 6, seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out in all the earth, How how do you take this imagery? It seems to be representing his perfections and his omni-attributes. But Jesus, now ascended, is going to lead many to God. Verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, What happens in chapter six following, it seems best to take what's in chapter six as events that at least have their genesis, their beginning after the ascension, which would put us in the book of Acts. There are ends in Revelation, ends plural, at least seven throughout the book, and their beginnings of ends. But if we went back. Thinking about the book of Acts for a moment. Let me put the book of Acts in in, in front of your mind. We're in Revelation, but think back to Acts. Because if we look back at the preaching of Peter in the early chapters of Acts, what's interesting is that Peter draws upon apocalyptic imagery. He goes apocalyptic, which is not the same thing as being apoplectic, you know. He's not going to go postal, as I said. But he, 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 uh, he, he goes into this apocalyptic imagery. In other words, to explain to the people in Jerusalem in the early part of Acts, shortly after the crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus, there's this church forming and it forms in power. There's a fire that, that descends uh, flaming tongues. You've read about this in Acts. And, and people speak with, with the languages of the scattered people of Israel who've come back to Jerusalem and, and, and they hear in the tongues that are now their, 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 their homeland tongues the, the glories of God. And the book of Acts has all this apocalyptic imagery in the preaching of Peter who's going back to Old Testament prophets to locate for the people who are listening to him what's happening in Jerusalem right then. Why did they hear the disciples proclaiming? the glories of God in languages they knew they didn't know. Why would the religious hierarchy of Israel along with Herod continue opposing Jesus though he was dead to them? And they expected his movement to come to nothing but they have to continue to imprison and even kill his followers. All of this begins in Acts which begins with the ascension of the Lord and moves right into apocalyptic preaching. So after his ascension... Jesus pours out his spirit on his disciples at Pentecost. That's Acts chapter 2. They proclaim the gospel with boldness. What happens to them? Opposition. Imprisonment. The martyrdom of Stephen, Acts chapter 7. The Jewish hierarchy in being responsible for all this, they seal their own doom doing this, set themselves up for sword and plague and the end of Jerusalem as they know it, When the Romans come and destroy it in AD 70 the very end of Jerusalem that Jesus predicted in three different places in the gospels Matthew 24 Mark 13 and Luke 21 now still in chapter 6 what did Jesus say would happen after he ascended did he ever talk about this he did John chapter 16 Jesus said what would happen after he ascended this is John 16 verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, Jesus speaking, John 16:7, it is to your advantage that I go away, speaking to his disciples. For if I do not go away, the helper, capital H, meaning the Holy Spirit, will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. I'll keep reading in John 16. And when he comes, the Spirit of God, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, the seals unfold in heaven. This vision that we have now in Revelation chapter 5, moving now into chapter 6, the seals unfold in heaven with implications on earth that is now under judgment because earth remains now the domain of Satan and the staging grounds of sin. And so the seal judgments in Revelation 6 through chapter 8 are not yet the end of the physical universe, though there's all this cataclysmic imagery of heaven and earth upheavals, but what these seal judgments signal is the beginning of the end, which is interrupted for a while, a long while in how we experience time, in order for more martyrs to be added. Look now at chapter 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, chapter 6, verse 9, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? This is the language of lament. Verse 11, they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been what is this about martyrdom from the time of the apostles to the time of the end it starts in the book of Acts that's why I've been referencing Acts and it continues on throughout church history to the present time now I'm well aware that many want to locate these seals judgments at the very beginning of of a seven-year window known as the Great Tribulation. That comes after a particular reading of Revelation that considers the book far future, and they may be right. But it seems what we have here is wider than just then. However one pencils out the period of Great Tribulation on the earth, language we'll see in chapter 7, What emerges from these sealed judgments is why the old order stands under God's condemnation. and This is what we need to get. Why does the old order stand under condemnation that will be unfolded progressively and then finally in final judgment? And the reason is because the old order never changes. As Jesus indicated in the passage in John 16 that I read to you a moment ago, the world remains under the influence of sin and Satan, and we like it that way. That's the way the world wants it to be. Satan is called the, the ruler of this world. That's how Jesus puts it in John 16, 11, that I read you. Now, we'll see Satan again in Revelation 12. He rules over fallen order chiefly by inciting opposition to God, particularly through political means. But he also incites martyrdom, the actual killing over time of God's people, God's servants. So it seems the martyrs here aren't just the martyrs at the end of history. It seems, it looks like we might have all martyrs in view from the book of Acts onward. And what these martyrs articulate in Chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, that I read a moment ago, Martin Luther King referred to something called the fierce urgency of now. And that's what these martyrs are are, are saying. How long, O Lord, will you let the opposition go on? How long until you vindicate we who bear your name? How long until you cast Satan out of your creation? And cast sin out with him for all time. This is a cry throughout church history. Not just at the end of it. You've got the scene. Jesus is ascended. He's in glory. He's victorious. The sands are are moving through the hourglass. But it's a big glass. It takes a while for all the sands to move through. Thank you Lord for your patience. But it will get more intense at the end. We'll see as it. Keeps unfolding in these judgments, the trumpet judgments and the bowls judgments. It, it gets more intense. Accounts are past due for all who have opposed God and pained his people. Everyone who has gambled that God is not there, not real, not personal. We've got everyone down in verse 15. Kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals. Verse, verse 15 in chapter 6 is what I'm looking at. And the rich and the powerful and Everyone. Slave and free. From the top to the bottom. When this lamb who was slain ascended into heaven in Revelation 5. Remember what we saw last week in chapter 1 verse 7. That every eye will see him. This is chapter 1 verse 7. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. It's the picture of people who who do not have any inkling that God is going to come back and and make a claim uh, on his world. And here that is, chapter 1, verse 7. Here it is in HD, in chapter 6, verses 15 through 17. Now, to conclude, I want to give you two takeaways based on what the martyrs say in chapter 6, verse 10 here. Looking at chapter 6, verse 10... It's clear that the martyrs feel a sense of urgency, and the urgency they feel goes in two directions, one direction being lament and the other direction being witness. This is how the urgency of the church expresses itself to God. One direction is lament, the other direction is witness. For the hope of the gospel to become our hope, which is why apocalyptic imagery is given to us. Again, it, it's not to make us puzzle solvers. It's not to satisfy our curiosity. It's, it's G.K. Chesterton said, uh, St. John the Apostle saw many strange monsters in his vision, but no monster so strange as one of his own commentators. Right? <laughs> it's not given to us for all of that stuff. It's given to us so that the hope of the gospel, becomes our hope. Which is that we, and if that's going to happen, we have to pick up a sense of urgency too. Ken said it to me this morning in our pre-production meeting when we go through the, uh, the paces of the service. Uh, he mentioned it, and I'm glad he, he said it so uh, uh, directly, he said, uh, not that he was challenging me directly, but directly just in the, in, the, in the, that's it, bottom line. He said, you know, we're to be alert. The, the, the passages are, are given to us so that we're awake, we're watchful. And, and it's not, it's not I, for so long in my life I thought of this as, you know, I don't want to be in a movie theater watching a movie I shouldn't watch when Jesus comes back, you know. I mean, that, that we all get... You know, we want to be morally ordered and, and that's good. I'm not cheapening that. I'm just saying that's not the purpose of being alert and being attentive and being awake. The purpose of being alert and attentive and awake, which Jesus uh, conveyed in so many of his parables, and it, and it coincides with this emphasis in Revelation, is that you're not deceived. You're not lulled to sleep. that You, you, don't, you don't think that there's anything more important than witnessing to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that that is what matters. The church has no other priority for that. Our priority is not saving the country. Our priority is witnessing and ensuring that our witness has integrity to the death and the, and the resurrection, the, the living Lord who has ascended and is coming in the same way he left as angels said. And so we, we get all of this here and we look at, we look at these martyrs and, and when you pick up their sense of urgency, whether we're ever martyred or not, we have to pick up a sense of urgency if the hope of the gospel is to become our hope. And the way we pick up the sense of urgency we see here is we, either we take up the lament of these martyrs and the other direction urgency takes us is to take up their witness. Lament and witness. These two things and we're done. 1st their lament. How long, O Lord? The psalmists say this over and again. The prophets say this over and again and the martyrs say it. Where do you find this question? You find it in the Psalms. You find it in the prophets and you find it in the martyrs in Revelation. How long, O Lord? They're asking for vindication. They're asking God to unleash his judgments and why wouldn't they they paid the ultimate price if an injustice has been done to you the thing you want most in the world is justice the the greatest injustice is to take a witness for God and silence him because this is God's world and God's going to make a claim he already makes his claim he's going to make it good as we say when he returns but this, this idea of judgment, I recognize speaking in a modern context to a modern church. Too many modern Christians have this ambivalence about God's judgment. We've overreacted to the fire brimstone of predecessors. We privately think ourselves, I mean this is how bad it is, that we privately think ourselves more merciful than God. We read our cultural sensibilities into God's warfare against evil, and we think, you know, I'm just, I'm just a little uneasy about God judging, you know. I just, I just want everybody to be treated fairly. Who do you think you are? I mean, come on. Who do I think I am? See, the th- I mean, we don't even appreciate grace if we don't realize that the grace that we sing about that is so amazing, and it is... It is so amazing just because it comes to us with blood on it, God's blood on it. Think about that. And so grace is always given to people against the backdrop of sin and real time evil, my evil with my skin on it, my destruction, my vandalism of God's good designs. It's not a concept, it's reality. And so if we take up the lament of the martyrs, it's not to gripe and complain. It's not to bellyache over the conditions of life in a fallen world. It's it's not to condemn and threaten hell on our neighbors. If I see one more social media post from a Christian threatening hell on somebody... To take up the lament of the martyrs is to set our hope in the promise of God putting everything right when he steps out of heaven for final judgment. And until then, we thank him for his patience. We thank him that the sands move very slowly through that hourglass. These martyrs show us the fierce urgency of now, that we should take up their lament with them. "How long, O oh Lord, It's not a belly aching. When's God going to do something about all this? It's worship. It's part of our worship. Don't be lulled to sleep. Be alert, be awake, be attentive. Not so that when he comes back, he, he doesn't find you doing something wrong. He's already forgiven everything but so that you are involved and engaged in the work that he's given us to do. That's what it's about. I was sitting in the movie Doolittle last night, just so you know. I thought, what a weird time for him to come back and go back. But the animals do talk, Lord, after all. Now we all talk to them in heaven. I don't know why I said that. It's stupid. Second, we take up their witness. Take a step back for a moment. Take a deep breath as you go through these select scenes in Revelation. I know it's a lot to take in. It's really hard to preach Revelation. It really is. I've regretted many times (laughs) saying that I was going to preach it. Uh, But think, think of what Old Testament prophets did. We've talked about the lament of the martyrs. Now let's talk about their witness. That's why they're there. Because they bore witness. That's what it says in verse 10 of chapter 6. Think back to what the prophets did in the Old Testament. The witness they bore included prosecuting the nations for the stand the nations took against the Lord. Psalm 2 is classic. Why do the nations rage? The kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against His anointed one. The prophet's witness included warning the nations that God would hold them accountable for how he treated their people. Jesus identifies so closely with us that he takes personally our mistreatments. That's a great comfort to us. After his ascension, Jesus keeps prosecuting the nations. While at the same time keeping the way open to the nations. What's the vision in chapter 5 verse 9? By your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. We'll see the same thing in chapter 7 next week. And, and in this we see the grace of the Lord Jesus in welcoming people and keeping the way open. But there's also a prosecution of the nations at the same time through the witness of the church in the world. Urgently bearing witness that his first coming matters more than anything else, because if you want acceptance with God, you've got to go through Him. An urgent witness also includes the inevitability of His second coming that breaks on the world in such a way that people would rather have mountains fall on them than face the God they've sinned against. To preserve their own lives at any cost, People actually run to the grave. That's the picture that we're given in the sixth seal. That's what the end of chapter six here pictures. Hiding is the first instinct of sinful humans. What's the Old Testament precedent? All the way back to the Garden of Eden. The fig leaves on Adam and Eve, hiding from God. But in the sixth seal, they're hiding in their graves. Calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who seated on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb. Every time you see wrath, recognize God is not apathetic. It's the last thing anybody would want God to be. Into verse 15. They hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountain. What, what is this about? Nobody wants their sin exposed. They realize that God's got them dead to rights. And that they, they dismissed His mercies. They didn't want His personal reach to them. We don't want our sin exposed. In fact, we've forever tried to stop God. Individually, we've tried. Collectively, we've tried. As humanity, we've tried to stop Him from reconciling the world to Himself. We've tried to commandeer this world for ourselves in any variety of ways. Let me just say this and we'll be done. Caves aren't good places to hide anyway. Jesus was buried in one and he knows where the back door is. There's only one hiding place that works and it's not in the grave. It is in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hide in the Lamb inside his grace for sinners. And if you end up under his altar as a martyr if even that is required of any of us it is because as Romans 12 says we put ourselves on the altar anyway as living sacrifices living slain things holy and acceptable because of what Christ has done let's pray and then we'll sing Lord thank you for your grace to us Thank you for, in revealing what is to come, we have all kinds of questions, but we're grateful, Lord, that along the way there are these uh, bloodstains from the grace that you have given us. And that though we uh, would chart this out in various and sundry ways, we think this will happen, and this this will happen, and maybe that'll happen, and then that takes place, and and Lord, it's it's all um, even all of that works together for the what you purpose. But I, I pray that the focus we're able to gather from this is that for the hope of the gospel to become our hope, we've we've got to take up the urgency of the martyrs, whether we're ever martyred or not. We need to share the lament. If there's no groaning in our praying, we're far too comfortable in this world in this life. Not that things have to be bad, but even on the best day that any of us ever have, if we can develop the the response to you that says, Lord, I don't know how this day could be any better, but I know that a better day does come. And that as satisfied as I am right now, I know that that pales in comparison to what actually awaits me because of your goodness to me in Christ. And I pray that our our witness to our neighbors will be something that we, we see as precious and valuable and brittle and that we will let nothing interfere with that witness going forward. Not that we have to be perfect people, But we do need to evidence uh, the reality of of Jesus having invaded our lives, and that makes a a difference in, in how we live our lives. Thank you, Lord, for doing all things well. Thank you for your great patience and your care for all that you have made. Thank you that even in judgment, you remember mercy. And we are a grateful people that you have brought us to the cross. And we thank you in Jesus' name.